Now, chapter 6, followed by the epilogue in The Curse, a satisfying end to the tale of a man who has lived in the shadow of the ancient pyramids for far too long. Dan had returned to the Bureau and got permission to use the special program again. This time, the search took a half hour. He'd asked for all patterns regarding the name Albert Prescott in the Lancaster County, Pennsylvania area from 1936 through the present day. It appeared that an Albert Prescott had purchased a home in Strasburg, Pennsylvania in 1950, long before Lancaster had become a popular tourist destination. He had moved from Philadelphia. He lived there until 1998 when he had disappeared. No one knew what had happened to him. Someone with a similar name became a resident of the newly opened Parsons Retirement Home in the town of Ephrata, Pennsylvania, in 1999. Perhaps this was only a coincidence. Dan called Parsons to find out. Does an Albert Prescott live there, or has he moved on? Who wants to know? Parsons was very wary. I'm an agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Dan said, which was true. And we believe a relative of Albert Prescott's has been found dead. I would like to visit him tomorrow, if possible. Dan said this in a very official-sounding voice, which the young woman on the other end of the phone found very believable. Yes, Mr. Prescott lives here, she said. Should I tell him you will be calling on him? No, that won't be necessary, Dan said. I will be there early in the morning. You'd best be early, the young woman said. He takes his morning walk at 6.30. Thank you. I'll be there. Dan called Helen. Can you go with me tomorrow? We have to leave 5 a.m. if we're going to see him. He apparently walks in the mornings. I was told he's outside at 6.30. I want to speak to him away from the building. Yes, I want to go. Even if it's the wrong man, we need to know, Helen said. Both of them were yawning when Dan picked her up. They got coffee at a drive-thru and hit the highway. They pulled into the driveway in front of Parsons at 6.25 a.m. Dan parked the car and looked around. The sun was up, but it was very early. Helen saw the figure of a man across the large yard near a line of trees. I bet that's him, she said. They started walking across the grass, and their shoes were immediately soaked with heavy dew. Dan and Helen walked steadily. When they were about thirty yards from the man, he became aware of them and turned around. Who are you? Keep away. I will yell for help, the man said. We mean you no harm, Mr. Prescott. We've come to ask you a few questions, Dan said. I called here yesterday and told them I was coming. I'm Dan Edmondson, and this is my partner, Helen Brown. I'm with the FBI. The man seemed flustered. The FBI? What could you possibly want to speak to me about? I haven't done anything. Please, don't come any closer. I'm old. I cannot run from you. That's why I live here. Please, sir, Helen said. We're only here to speak with you briefly. We mean you no harm. Is there a place to sit here where we can talk for a few minutes? 
Prescott looked around wildly. There are benches right over there by the flower bed. I walk here alone every morning. I like to be alone. I have no friends here. I don't live here by choice. What could you possibly want with me? I've lived here a long time since it opened. I've done nothing. I've never bothered anyone. I rarely go into the nearby community and then only when I have to. Please leave me alone. Prescott looked like he might try to run. He would not make it far from the look of him. He looked frail in the morning light. He also possessed an uncanny resemblance to someone Helen had seen before. She could not recall who it was. His British accent sounded very precise, but he sounded like a man who was used to being obeyed. Helen eased forward while Dan remained behind. We assure you that we are not here to harm you at all. We want to show you a newspaper article about something of importance. We're not even sure you were involved. You couldn't possibly be old enough to know about it, but you might have had an older relative who knew something. Could you spare us a few minutes? We won't keep you long, and then you can get back to your morning walk, Helen said, motioning toward the benches. Her manner and voice seemed to have a calming effect on the older men. Very well, I suppose I could give you a few minutes. The benches over there are probably wet with dew. They probably won't be comfortable. We could talk right here. What is it that you have to show me? Helen handed Prescott a copy of the newspaper article about Richard Fenner's disappearance and asked, Do you need glasses to read this? Glasses, heavens no, my eyes are fine. He took the article and read through it. He stopped, looked up, and Helen thought she saw the hint of tears in his eyes. I, I don't know anything about this, she said. Why have you come here? Dan said, We have been researching this story for many, many months. Your name was brought up by a source. What source? I have lived here since 1999 when they opened, but this, this tragedy happened long, long ago. Good Lord, 1923? How would I know anything about that? Prescott said. Helen saw that the man's face was filled with apprehension. Instinctively, she reached into her pocket and took out a brochure. She handed it to him. Please turn to page five, item seven, and read, she said. Prescott looked at the cover of the brochure, and his eyes grew big. They both saw fear in his face. Page five. Item seven, you said? He opened the brochure and looked furtively at the place she mentioned. His eyes looked wild. Again, he looked like he might try to run. What does this have to do with me? Is this some bizarre kind of joke? Has someone put you up to this? Is that little blurb about your grandfather? It's the same name as yours. That man disappeared. Is he related to you? Dan asked. No, how could it be? I know nothing about that. If you don't leave me alone, I'm going to start screaming as loudly as I can. Please leave me. Get away. In as calming a voice as she could muster, Helen said, It's going to be all right, Mr. Prescott. We did not come here to harm you. We'll leave now. We'll leave you alone. You like to be alone, don't you? You're always alone with your thoughts. 
There is much to think about, isn't there? Come, Dan, let's go. Mr. Prescott, we will leave you now. Time will go on like it always does. Oh, by the way, the young man in the story, he has a niece. We have adopted her as our friend. I am sure you would like her very much if you met. She wants us to find out the truth. She will be one hundred years old in October. Imagine that. Think of the things she has seen. She has lived a long, lonely life, wishing she could see Richard again. But that was not to be. Goodbye. Helen turned on her heel and began walking with Dan a few steps away when a voice rang out. Wait! Please wait! Please! I can't stand it any more. I can't go on. Please come back. I will talk to you, but only this once, and if you tell anyone, I will deny everything. Dan and Helen turned around and walked back to the man. Helen said, Who are you, really? You must believe what I say. Otherwise, there's no point in me saying anything. What does that mean, Dan asked. I am George Edward Stanhope Molnier Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. I was born in 1866, Prescott said. Dan laughed. That's impossible. Why would you? Yes, I am that old, the man said. That's impossible, Helen added. No one could possibly live that long, Miss Brown. But you see, the curse is quite real. What curse, Dan asked. The curse of King Tut's tomb. However, it's not a curse that brings death. In my case, it's a curse that brought life. I loved the fast life as a young man. Fast horses and faster cars. Loved them greedily until my accident in Germany in 1901. It left me as weak as a child. I developed other interests after that. I went to Egypt and met Howard Carter. What a marvelous find. When the mosquito bit me, it infected me with this terrible malady. I thought I was going to die. I wish that I had. You can't know what this is like. I'm as weak as I ever was, but I don't age. God help me. I live on and on and on. It's like being a living mummy. Decades pass by painfully. People die all around me, and after a while, people begin to look at me with suspicion. Why isn't he aging like me, like the rest of us, they wonder. What's different about him? Is he a devil? And so I have to move on. I cannot abide in any one place for more than twenty years. I stayed in Egypt as long as I could, and then I loved Strasbourg too well and stayed there too long. I must leave here soon. Life is a living hell for me. Helen said, if this could possibly be real, she paused, the realization of what she was asking slowly dawning on her. Who's buried in your tomb on Beacon Hill? A dear young scholar whom I had hoped to meet by the name of Richard Fenner. Dan's face clouded with anger. He said with great force, Did you kill him? If you did, I will see to it that whatever life you have left is even more miserable. Prescott did not flinch. He showed no fear. In a voice that showed he was used to giving orders rather than receiving them, he said with clear disdain, 
Mind your manners, Mr. Edmondson. No one speaks to me in that tone. I have never killed anyone. Poor Richard Fenner was rushing to our sight when his drunken idiot of a driver drove off the road, killing the both of them, not far from our excavation. He died in the accident. I also died, or so everyone thought. But I revived. I hid myself. Locals took the bodies of Fenner and his driver, stripped them, dumped them in a pit, and covered them with sand. Then those same people stole the vehicle. Poor Howard Carter rushed to the scene but found nothing. Confused, he went back to his work. I learned later that he thought Richard Fenner had changed his mind about joining the dig. When Richard's parents showed up searching for him, he was overwhelmed with remorse, having discovered that Fenner really had disappeared. I dressed in a disguise. Having lots of money is sometimes a good thing. I paid handsomely for information and had Fenner's body recovered. I knew that something incredibly strange had happened to me. I decided to stage my own death. It's amazing what money can do. Given the impact of the elements and the clothing, no one looked too closely to see if Fenner's body was mine. I lived in anonymity in Egypt for years. Then I came here. I lived in Philadelphia. I discovered that people were eyeing me strangely as the years slipped by. So I moved to Strasbourg. I stayed there far too long. The same thing happened. Finally, I came here. Helen said, his parents never found out what happened to him. Our dear friend, his niece, says they both died of broken hearts. She's grieved for him all her long life. For the second time, she thought she saw the gleam of tears in the man's eyes. I, I sent them money once, 5,000 pounds. That was the clincher. Dan and Helen were convinced that this was actually Lord Carnivan. They stood in silence for a long moment. Finally, Dan said, Well, what are we to do with you? You didn't murder the poor man, but you've been living a lie for so long that it's unbelievable. You've hurt people deeply. Yes, I agree. I'm sorry for the selfish things I've done, as all men will be, but if you turn me in, at first they won't believe anything about this. How could I be who I say I am? Even if they do believe you, what would they do with me? I would become an object of research poked and prodded in their desire to extend life. Perhaps, using me, they could discover eternal life. But the human body cannot last indefinitely. The announcement of my existence would also create a dreadful problem for my heirs and the present Earl. I believe that I am one of a kind, a cruel anomaly that will never be repeated. Now that you've found me, you must decide what you will do. There's one thing I can do immediately. I will see to it that Richard Fenner's niece does not have to worry about money any more. The decision is yours to make. I'm so tired of living this way, but I'm also afraid to die. Do as you will. Epilogue Alicia's 100th birthday was celebrated at a restaurant in Philadelphia. The entire event was paid for by an unknown benefactor. It was a wonderful party. The wedding of Dan Edmondson and Helen Brown was spectacular. Their adopted grandmother, Alicia Brooks, was wonderfully comfortable in a seat of honor. Those who attended the wedding said it was incredible. 
The couple went on a month-long honeymoon to England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. The rich really do know how to live well, Dan remarked, during an exquisite private tour of Highclere Castle, conducted by the present Earl. As to Mr. Prescott, Dan and Helen had agreed. The worst punishment he would suffer was to go on living in anonymity.